This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. By the time senators are done clutching their pearls, they will have cleared more than $2 trillion to address this pandemic, and that's just in the course of a few days. Does political debate have to be so nicey-nicey to yield good results? With us to talk about this and some other Congress amid the pandemic topics is James Wolner, President Senior Fellow at the R Street Institute, a lecturer and fellow at American University, and previously senior aide to Senators Pat Toomey, Mike Lee, and Jeff Sessions, and a friend of political theater. James, welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of political theater as well, but thank you for calling me a friend. It's, it's, been, it's been too long. Thanks for, thanks for coming on. Well, thanks for having me. So let's let's talk a little bit. I mean, the, the Senate is the Senate is being the Senate. Uh, you know, there's there's always a, la- a few last minute hiccups uh, with any well with any legislation, much less a two trillion dollar uh, stimulus package. Uh, but you know, this has come together remarkably quickly. But I, I think you know, I was struck by something that you were tweeting earlier this week that. You know, the, the with Susan Collins, uh, you know, she, she wanted to be recognized on the floor on Monday. Uh, Chuck Schumer objected. I mean, usually you don't see that. Usually you see just, you know, people just start talking because nobody's there to object. Um, and, and you know, created this almost melee on the floor. And, and, you know, it looked like a meltdown. And one of the things that you observed was like, this is what actual debate looks like. They're actually getting things done. Let's talk about that a little bit. Right. So you... Earlier this week, during this third stimulus package, there's a lot of debate and a lot of hand-wringing over the dysfunction in the Senate. And I turned on the TV or I turned on the internet link and watched the Senate floor to see what was happening. And what I saw was a debate. It was senators disagreeing with one another, saying, I think we should do this. No, I think we should do that. And that's exactly why we have a Senate. I'm not sure why that's so disturbing to people. And if anything, what I see in the Senate over the past couple of years and why it's so dysfunctional is the fact that that hasn't been happening. There's been too much comedy. There's been too much agreement and not enough conflict. Yeah. And let's talk about that because, you know, the, the way that, I mean, one, the, the word comedy is, is such a kind of a funny word, right? <laughs> to begin with, like most people, uh, you know, don't, don't use the word comedy in the in the uh, course of their day as they go to work at, say, Roll Call or <laughs> American University. You know, people, you know, seldomly stand up and say, there's a lack of comedy in this uh, staff meeting. Uh, but... Is, is it just kind of overblown? I mean, like, it, it be, you know, talking about comedy, are they really just being kind of nervous Nellies about this whole thing? I, I've been thinking on this for a while, and, I've, and I think we've talked about this in the past as well. From what I can tell, a lot of the dysfunction we see, not only within the coronavirus debate, but also more generally, is it stems from the fact that it's, there's too much comedy too much civility and not enough conflict in our politics. And the fact that we think that disagreement is bad in a place like the United States Senate or in the United States Congress, that somehow it impedes that institution from doing its job. That to me tells us that we're thinking very differently about politics than say the framers thought about politics and how people up until very recently thought about politics in this country. And, and also, I mean, 
the context of which this is happening, I mean, like this is, there is a, an, an enormous economic human cost to what we're seeing with the coronavirus pandemic. And I'm not trying to, to, to say that there isn't something, you know, huge happening and it's not producing, producing hard feelings, but the Senate has difficulty passing appropriations bills in a regular year. And they've put, they've put three, they've helped put together three different, you know, responses to the pandemic. And they're probably going to start working on a fourth as soon as they like, clear this one. And, and it's all come together in the matter of like a little over a week for, for all of them, or almost two weeks for all three packages. I mean, this is warp speed for the Senate. Right. I think this underscores uh, my point very well, which is that the fact that we our first reaction is that this is taking forever underscores uh, our changing view of politics and the changing view of the Senate. I, I talk about the factory model or the factory mindset. And we think of Congress and we think of the Senate as a factory whose job it is to produce legislative widgets to build things. And when it can't do that, when it slows down, when the production line gets clogged up, that's a big, big problem. But that's not how the Senate ultimately was meant to operate. Instead, it's, it's, a, it's a place where you go to participate in an activity, where our representatives go to participate in an activity. And when you think about it like that, all of a sudden, this speed with which they're doing things becomes very apparent uh, because it's, it's remarkable how little activity and action there is on the floor of the United States Senate. And the fact that, they can, that, that we're wringing our hands over a day and a half, two days, and you're absolutely right, there may be and there are are very real cost to that. And, not, and I'm not trying to belittle that. But at the end of the day, what's really important here is the process by which we make collective decisions. That's the whole point of the Congress. We don't need a Congress if we don't have a process. And, and also, I mean, I, I, I can't help but think that this, uh, their senators are actually spending quite a bit of time in proximity to each other. I mean, like they're not, obviously they're social distancing or as much as they can. And they've got some people in, in quarantine, uh, but they're actually spending time meeting and doing more than just having lunch on Tuesday and, and sort of nodding their heads as, as like the vice president or, you know, somebody from, you know, the center for American progress talks to them, depending on where they're, you know, which, which party they're in. I mean, this is, this is like this is the hard stuff, and they're spending more time together. And this comes on top of impeachment, where they had to sit in their desks on the floor for almost a month. I mean, yeah, that was- this is this is very real. And there's something that happens when you sit down with someone face to face and you look at them. There's something that happens when you interact with people on a daily basis. One of my favorite scholars of this of the Congress, his name was Bertram Gross. He was a he was a former uh, employee of the Senate in the 1950s. He was a political scientist. He wrote a book called The Legislative Struggle. It's a fabulous book. And he would argue that compromise emerges out of the legislative struggle. It's mm-hmm. by trying to win and disagreeing and fighting and with one another, that we get a better idea of what ultimately we want to do and we make compromises that way. And you can't do that unless you are engaged in that activity. But again, if you have this factory model and you look at Congress as a, as a production line, well, conflict is bad because look, you don't want to design a Buick 
on the floor of the factory. You assemble the Buick <laughs> according to a plan that someone else has designed elsewhere. That's the whole point of a factory. That is not what Congress does. Mike Mansfield talks about this in a, in a famous speech that he gave in defense of his, of his leadership, where he says senators aren't punching a time clock on their way onto the factory floor and assuming their positions. That's not their job. That's not what they do. But somehow that's what we think they do today. And I think that's why it's so dysfunctional. And ironically, it's, it's at its least productive uh, ability right now, the, 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 the one point in its history when we think of it as a productive type institution, a process of production and manufacturing and fabrication. Uh, are, are you somewhat amused too that, I mean, amid this, you know, big sort of momentous debate and disagreements and so forth that, that both houses also might just sort of voice vote it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, kind of, it, it just minimizes everything. It's like, we're, this is so tough and so hard and it takes so long, but yeah, we can just do it by voice vote. Right. That may or may not happen. It depend, I mean, th- a lot of this depends on, uh, you know, on how, invested people feel and, and whether they feel part of the process. And right now, you know, they're seeing, you know, the, again, disagreements come up at the last second, but I, I think, you know, you're, you make a good point that this, we've been so bereft of actual debate, even impeachment wasn't really debate. I mean, it, it, it was a series of speeches, uh, but there wasn't a lot of engagement in, in the, in the way that we think of it as people debating. Uh, this is what debate looks like. And I think that we're so shocked by it because we just don't see it. It's not only what debate looks like, it's also how you win. I mean, look what the Democrats did, agree with them or disagree with them. They used leverage that they have in the rules to get a better outcome in the end that they wanted on a third coronavirus bill. That's the whole point of the rules. The right. rules are there as leverage. They empower the members. And, and that's what the Democrats were doing. And it was somehow people were declaring that to be illegitimate or somehow out of bounds. And it, it, it strikes me as odd because that is literally how you're supposed to use the rules. And sometimes you win. Sometimes you lose. Sometimes you get more than half a loaf. Sometimes you get less. But that's the whole point of self-government in a free society like ours. I did. I did notice that. I mean, granted, like everybody got a little uh, gripey on on Monday uh, in, in the Senate, but some of the the highest dugin, if you will, came from those senators who happened to be uh, up for re-election this year in twenty twenty, <laughs> like Susan Collins, uh, like Mitch McConnell himself, the Majority Leader. Um, I, I, I again, it, this is it's not all theater, but I did detect some. Uh, a, a little bit of playing for the cameras there. Uh, oh, absolutely. And look, McConnell, when he is going after Schumer and the Democrats for delaying things, uh, for blocking a cloture vote twice on the third coronavirus bill, he, there are other things that he could do in the rules to speed that up. There's there He could force them to mount a talking filibuster under Rule 19. Mm-hmm. He could do all sorts of things, but he chooses not to. Instead, he puts the Senate in a quorum call and goes back to negotiate with Chuck Schumer. So it, that aspect of it most certainly is political theater because it allows him to shift blame to the Democrats, to Chuck Schumer uh, for any delay. And then it allows him ultimately to claim credit for any outcome because he it was not as bad as everybody thought it was going to be. Do you think that there was also uh, just the, the teeny bit of uh, FOMO for, for McConnell? Because really, it was Stephen Mnuchin and Eric Euland, <laughs> another <laughs> another Sessions alum, uh, at the uh, and and the incoming chief of staff, Mark Meadows, who were doing the sort of the final touches with with Chuck Schumer. 
Yeah, and I think that I, I do take the frustration in part to be real, though, because if you think about it, when you're dealing with issues like life and death things resulting from a coronavirus pandemic or war or, say, global warming or other things that are vitally important to you, it becomes very hard for you to say, OK, I really am thrilled about participating in a political process that is uncertain, that I can't control, that I don't know how it's going to end, that I cannot predict, and I ultimately uh, have to work really hard at to try to prevail in. And I have to give people that disagree with me an equal chance to have their say. And that's what politics is all about. And when we're confronted with those types of issues, our uh, willingness to engage in politics, I think um, we it becomes less and less and less. And we turn to approach more of a kind of an authoritarian rulership type model of making decisions. And but that's not why we have Congress and Congress can't ultimately act like that. It, it can't function like that. Are you saying that this is hard work? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, presumably it's supposed to. I mean, it could still be it could still be enjoyable and fulfilling. But yes, absolutely. It's hard work. You get You got to get out of the bed and put your feet on the ground in the morning and you got to stand up and you got to argue and talk. You have to reveal what you think you should do and you have to take firm stances that people can hold accountable and then you have to abide by the outcome if it's produced via a legitimate process even if you don't like it that's no i mean that sounds brutal most people would not want to do that kind of stuff yeah um turn into a couple other things like we this is not really the first time that the senate has uh has had to deal with like some serious health issues. Um, I mean, you were writing a little while ago uh, this week about the 1793 yellow fever pandemic, you know, when, when or epidemic, I guess, is, uh, in Philadelphia, when the capital was still in Philadelphia and the arguments among some of the founding fathers about whether they should head for the hills or not. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so we often think of the crises we face as being somehow new, but I, when it comes to the dangers and being in a precarious position, I don't think Congress has ever um, been unexperienced with that sort of thing. Going even before the 1790s and before the ratification of the Constitution in the 1780s in the Confederation Congress, it had to flee numerous times because it couldn't pay its own troops and other things. But in 1793, here is a situation. Philadelphia is the largest city in America, the most cosmopolitan city. It's approximately 50, 55,000 residents. Almost half of them flee, 20,000 of them flee the city during that uh, epidemic uh, between August and October, November of 1793. And almost 5,000, 10% of the population dies, 10%. That's a lot of people. And so this is somehow, this is not new to them. And Congress admittedly wasn't meeting at the time, but they were there in June. They left and they were scheduled to come back. And when the administration, President Washington and his cabinet were there, and President Washington doesn't know what to do. He thinks it's a very dangerous situation. So he writes Madison, the person who knows the most about the Constitution. And he says, hey, Jimmy, can I adjourn the Congress or convene the Congress, I should say, to another location that doesn't have the yellow fever. Sounds sensible, right? He has the authority to call Congress back in. So can he call him back in somewhere else? And Madison says, no, no, you don't. Only Congress (laughs) can do that. And they have to assemble to do that, which means, you know what? It's really bad. So either they they don't come back until that first day. And when they do come back, because the Constitution requires them to come back in December at the time, that they be very, very careful and get out of there as quickly as possible. But ultimately, there's certain rules and requirements that we have to follow if we want to abide by the Constitution. 
And I, yeah, it, it is just sort of striking that, you know, we're still, you know, we're still dealing with some of the, these very basic issues that we confronted at the dawn of the Republic about when it comes to remote voting. I mean, like, there are several, several senators, several members of the House have asked, what are our are our options on this. And, you know, Jim McGovern, the rules committee chairman over in the house said there really aren't a lot of good ones. I mean, we can use unanimous consent. Um, and then, you know, that's, that's about that and social distancing, like spreading out, you know, some of the, uh, the ways that we vote and how many people are in the room at the time. There's not a ton. We can't really just like phone it in and have the, the clerk record, you know, over a video conference. It's not that simple. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's amazing that these are the, some of the procedures that were put into place, some of the protocols put in place after 9-11 uh, allow you to assemble an emergency quorum, but that, mean, that means people have to be incapacitated or unable to get to the Capitol. So this is a, you know, as you said, nothing, nothing is new uh, and we're struggling with some of the same exact issues. Right. And it's refreshing to see people actually acknowledge that and to say, look, there are no easy solutions here. You know, my father-in-law is a physician. He's an oncologist. He has to go to the hospital every day. This is something that we worry about, but he doesn't have an option. He has to go to work because that's his job and that's what he wants to do and needs to do. And the same goes, I think, for members of Congress. You can't be a member of Congress from your own room in your basement of your own home. It doesn't work. Fortunately for us, you can record podcasts remotely. Hey. You can do all other sorts of things remotely, but you can't engage in the practice of self-government. That's just something that is fundamentally different because going back to what Bertram Gross says, that struggle, that effort that you have to expend, that you have to go back and forth with one another, that's what informs the process. And if in 1787 they had tried to, to come up with the plan of government via written communication, there's no way the Constitution would have resulted. I firmly believe that. I don't think the Civil Rights Act of 1964 happens if no one's in Congress and no one's having to wait out filibusters. A lot of this stuff, a lot of the big major things that we have to do in, this, in our country, in our history, come from us getting together and engaging in the messy process of Republican politics. And you cannot do that remotely. There's no way. Well, James, thank you so much for walking through uh, this with us, because I feel like, you know, that it is it was very easy to like look at what was happening in the Senate floor this week and say, like, wow, the place is just in a meltdown. Um, and so I, I, I appreciate, you know, you like helping kind of tell everybody that, hey, chill, this is actually the way it's supposed to work. And look, it is working. <laughs> we need more of it. We need more, absolutely more of this. I don't care if you agree or disagree with what they're doing. The only way you can express that agreement or disagreement is via uh, the Senate floor standing up, beating your chest, stomping your feet and, and screaming. That's ultimately what it takes. And that's, that's perfectly fine. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to Political Theater. You can catch up with this podcast and previous episodes of it wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Google Play, Apple Podcasts, uh, wherever you know you happen to, to search out for your podcast. Thanks for listening. Political Theater is produced by CQ Roll Call, leader in nonpartisan political and policy news and analysis for more than 70 years. CQ Roll Call is part of Fiscal Note, a global technology and media company. 